The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito, kind of flying solo today as my co-host Alice is basking under the Florida sun for the next two weeks. Uh, we are collectively Groundworks Inc. We design and build gardens in New York City and the surrounding area. And our show aims to bring the culture to horticulture. So before we begin today, I just want to say a big thank you to all of our new fans on our Facebook page this week. If you're not following us yet, please go to our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants, and follow us. You'll get a heads up on upcoming shows, some interesting horticultural news and events, as well as classes and events that we're going to be sponsoring. So in anticipation of the show this week, um, we asked our friends on Facebook to name some plants that they thought had altered history and their responses were pretty interesting and spot on. You can read them on the on the page. And so today we're going to talk with an expert on the subject. We're crossing the pond again as we often do and we're going to tackle that topic with someone who has put a lot of time into pondering that question. Um, today's guest is Bill Laws. He's calling in from the UK and Bill is a writer, journalist, and an expert on gypsy and traveler affairs. He writes about homes, gardens, arts, and history, and his clients have included the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, and the Telegraph. He is also the author of 15 books on topics as diverse as the Curious History of Vegetables and the History of Walkers and Walking. That sounds like a book that's right up my alley. <laughs> um, his, his latest book, because I also torture my family by um, making them walk everywhere, which they, they're adverse to do. Um, Bill's latest book is 50 Plants That Changed the Course of History, and that's what brings him to our show today. Bill, thanks for joining us. Hi, Carmen DeVito. How are you? Very good. It's nice to hear you so clear across the pond. <laughs> That's right. It's still a pond to us, right? <laughs> anyway, so, Bill, we always have to ask, whenever we have writers on the show, we always like to ask them what prompted them to write about their particular topic. So what, um, what was the inspiration for you? Why did you write about the 50 plants that, that um, you know, alter the course of history? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose it, it brought together two of my great loves, which is writing and plants. <laughs> um, I, I mean, uh, I wasn't very successful as a as a schoolboy. I have to I have to say I, I had to I was asked to leave school rather early and and did what young boys who leave school a bit early do and became a journalist. <laughs> and so I I worked as a journalist for uh, well long enough to you know to get 
I suppose, reasonably accomplished at it. And then in those kind of hippie days, you know, I gave it all up and persuaded my wife that we needed to lead the good life and led her into mid-Wales where, uh, where I took up a job as a gardener. The money was terrible, but the job was so interesting. And I suppose I've always, I've always been fascinated by growing and gardening and um, that sort of thing. So, you know, being given the opportunity to come up with my list of 50 plants that I thought had changed the course of history was uh, a bit of a dream come true, really. That's that's pretty amazing. I mean, some of them, as I mentioned earlier, some of our Facebook friends listed some that were pretty obvious. And obviously, we can't cover all 50 of them on the show today. But some were obvious. As I said, you include tea, you include hemp. Um, um, I'm probably mispronouncing it. Is it chincona, which is the yeah, quiet yeah. chincona, upland cotton, tobacco, rice, black pepper. Those were some of the ones that came up that people were you know, sort of right on about guessing as influencing history. But I want to kind of focus on what I found to be some of the more surprising species on the list. Um, I I didn't expect to find them. For example, the onion, or otherwise known as Allium sepa in botanical Latin. How how did that planet make the list, the very short list of the 50 most influential plants? Yeah, it it kind of crept in by the back door, I I have to admit. Um, although, of course, it is one of our very oldest plants. And, and it's also, and I don't know how this goes down in the States, but um, it, it's been responsible for some curious stereotyping. I mean, over here, you know, we have this, this, we still have this image of the typical Frenchman, as far as we're concerned, is a, is a guy on a bike with a striped T-shirt and a, a Breton beret and a string of onions over his handlebars. <laughs> because it's, it's completely incorrect, but it, it comes from those Breton farmers, or very much the, the Breton farmers' boys, who just shortly after the war, when times were really tight, um, used to trundle over on the ferry to the UK with their uh, with their onions over the you know their excess onions over the handlebars to sell to, to British housewives. And of course, being Bretons, they were dressed, you know, the stripy <laughs> T-shirt and all the rest of it. And, and, and it, it's, it's curious that the onions should have, um, you know, produced them. They were known as onion johnnies, which I thought was rather nice. But, but the, the onion is, is a, a very kind of, it, it is one of our oldest known plants. And I suppose I use that as a bit of an excuse to, to bring in that clever man, Carl Linnaeus, yes. who managed to name so many of our plants. He just—he he was just such a wonderful guy, wasn't he? He, he brought order to all the chaos of, of of the naming of plants, and and the onion being such a widespread plant and a wide used plant had got a sort of multitude of names. So he he kind of cleared up the confusion for the onion. Well, I can't imagine a kitchen. I mean, it's so essential for culinary use. You know, I can't imagine a kitchen not having an onion. I mean, being Italian, of course, garlic is primary, but I can't imagine not having that, you know. So yeah. he actually, so you're saying Linnaeus actually named, gave the onion the name, the botanical name that it has now. He did. And of course, he, he set up that whole, um, you know, that whole business of, of the, you know, the naming of plants generally. 
Uh, I mean, where would we be without him? And indeed, where would we be without the onion? I mean, bless it, it it's caused a, a bit of confusion. I mean, Charles Darwin was, con- was convinced when he looked at his, you know, his maid in the kitchen. I don't suppose he ever carved up an onion himself. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he'd, he'd look at the, the housekeeper chopping up the onions and, and weeping tears as she did so. And he thought, mm, this is, um, you know, the, the, the tears that you, you cry when you cut an onion, they must be, because he was a sort of a thoughtful kind of fellow, they must be the same as the tears that, you know, the, the widow weeps for her, her, her lost love. Um, I think he and, spent and too much time with his barnacles. Wrong, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the tears that, that we weep when we chop up an onion are, are of a different chemical composition. In fact, it was one of your wonderful biochemists, William Frey, who discovered that you know, the tears we weep out of sadness have got completely different proteins in to the ones we weep with an onion. So, um, yeah, the onion was, you know, it had a lot to tell us. Interesting. Well, I'm really glad you included it. Um, continuing with the fragrant theme of, of a sweeter, sweeter fragrance, the sweet pea, um, otherwise known as Lotharis odoratus. It's a relative of the edible pea. Um, and you say in your book that in the 1850s, it caused as much of a stir as this tulip craze did. But the edible pea also figured uh, pretty prominently in the early understanding of genetics. Can you elaborate on, on, on how that happened? Yeah, I, I mean, well, this is back to, to good old uh, Carl Linnaeus because both the, the P, Pisum sativa, and the sweet pea, Lathyrus, they're, they're all within that same family, the, the, the leguminosae. My Latin is appalling. (laughs) That's okay. It's no better than mine. (laughs) But they are all in that same family. I have to say, I couldn't have written a book without the sweet pea in because it just is my favorite flower. Um, Over here we have allotments. Do you have allotments? Little... If you have a small um, apartment, you can go and no. rent a little bit of ground to grow. No, we um, we we um, we have community gardens, but they're not okay. uh, they're not official. I mean, the government would never give us land for free anymore. I mean, they yeah, might have. Well, I don't think we get ours for free, but yeah, c- certainly. I mean, I have my allotment, and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be just growing growing with vegetables. But sweet peas, I have to have sweet peas in there. And yes, you're quite right. There was. There was this kind of mad selling and buying of, of special sweet peas that went on in sort of the Victorian era, um, and it and it did okay. They weren't they weren't kind of trading the value of houses and apartments when they were flogging their um, their plants to one another, but but it did. There was a real craze, and it kind of continued this whole sort of hobby planting. Um, a bit like sort of gladioli or chrysanthemums, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, this hobby flowering. But that's hardly kind of life-changing. It's hardly kind of history-changing. Whereas, of course, um, the, the pea was extraordinary in, in good old Gregor Mendel, the, um, uh, the, the uh, I'm just trying to remember where he was from. He was, was in East Europe. Yeah, in Moravia or something, right? He was a monk. He was. He? Yeah. And, and, and he, he just, I mean, you know, he, he studied, he realized that, you know, that traits are inherited independently, independently of one another in pairs um, from each parent. 
simply by by playing with the peas um and and bless him he he uh, you know he got all his findings into a scientific uh, paper which i think his boss said that's a load of rubbish and the poor man went to his grave without realizing that actually he had kind of cracked the genetic code and it, and it was left to you know botanists after him to show that yeah through the pea he had he, he had made sort of genetic history I know, it's a really interesting story because he never got credit during his lifetime and then sort of he was rediscovered many, many, many decades later. I think it was in, in England, wasn't it, by um, some botanists and they kind of gave him credit for... Yeah, I, I, think, I think both um, the, a, a German and a, a Dutch botanist were, were very much kind of behind him and helping him out well obviously far too late. Yeah. And uh, there's another British academic guy called William Bateson. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, was, he obviously was a funny sort of uh, monk because I think he started off, uh, I seem to remember he started off breeding mice and it just wasn't very nice in his cell or whatever it was he was working in. And his, um, you know, the, 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 the head monk there told him he got to get rid of the mice and obviously that persuaded him to go over to playing with peas, which is much more sensible and hygienic, I'm sure. Yes, that makes more sense. Well, when you were saying um, that sweet peas just are sort of indispensable in your garden, um, one of the things that I was really happy to see on the list that's indispensable to me in my kitchen, I don't grow it because I, I live in a temperate climate, is ginger. Um, so I'm going to be a bit shameless. I, it's one of my favorite food flavorings and um from what I read in your book, it's been in the human diet and in the medicine cabinet for millennia. How um, how did you find that that impacted history? Yeah, this is a this is a trade item, and I, and I think a, a lot of uh, a lot of particularly kind of the spices. It's it's so easy these days to forget how incredibly important they were in sort of medieval uh, and, and and later times. I mean, uh, you know, a, a piece of ginger was was valued about the same as uh, as an entire sheep in the 1300s. Wow! And 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 ginger had that extraordinary. Uh, I mean, it it was sort of very much, you know, a, a Roman uh, a Roman vegetable spice, whatever, call mm -hmm. it what you will, flavor. Mm -hmm. um, but it it kind of lost favor along with the the fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, and then it 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 really rose up and, and spread across the uh, the world with the with the rise of Islam. Um, they were they were just brilliant traders, and uh, they they spread across the the Middle East into Europe and carrying you know all the the valuables they could from you know, they picked up here there and everywhere sort of zimbabwean copper and mm. ivory and salt but of course ginger as well and it was you know they introduced ginger into the markets you know right as far as the united kingdom so it, i i i think that um, apart from the fact that the gingerbread man is is yes. you, know, you know it's a, a real kind of icon yes. um of uh, yeah, 
confectionery icon that um yeah the ginger kind of rates a place maybe a small one in history <laughs> but it still ranks a place well i was glad to see it on the list well we have to take a break bill uh, okay. when we come back we're going to talk some more i want to get into some of the more uh, additional tropical species that impacted history. stay tuned to we dig plants on the heritage radio network in the garden an old pair of jeans And she smiled at the sun And the pale olive trees She wiped the dirt from her hands As she stood up to leave And the earth opened up And she was taken from me Today's program has been brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run commercial offset print house that brings together environmentally friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Founded in 1998 by Eugene Lee and his father, Cam Lee, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and green technology. Rolling Press prints using soy and vegetable inks, uses a variety of certified and recycled papers, and they incorporate a chemical-free production process. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are here with Bill Laws, author, journalist, and gardener. We're talking about the 50 plants that have impacted history. Um, Bill, I want to talk about the coconut. Um, yeah. That's another species I was really surprised to see on the short list of influential plants. Um, in, in your book, you write that there's not a cell in the coconut palm that lacks a use and that it rivals bamboo in terms of usefulness and versatility. What do we get from this quote-unquote lazy man's crop? Because it seems like it doesn't need much cultivation. No, it's, it, it's rather like they say they used to say about the pig that they used everything but the squeak. <laughs> and uh, when it came to the coconut, and of course we, we are talking about kind of um, pre-petrochemical age, but there's a there's a, uh, a an interesting thing here because I think you know plants like the coconut are going to be making a comeback. But absolutely every bit of it was was used for something. I mean, never mind putting the coconut on the coconut shy. There was coconut fi- um, fibers; they were processed into matting, dried kernels, or the copra went into the soap and margarine makers. Um, According to the Indonesians, the coconut had a different use for every day of the year. Dried fronds went on the fire. The kernels were fed to babies, hens, and pigs. I mean, quite an extraordinary thing. Uh, Apparently, I I didn't know this until I was was doing the research, that during World War II, they used. They were able to use the the liquid inside because it's sterile. It served as an intravenous dip, 
dip, trip, sorry. Oh, yes. For, for wounded yes. soldiers. Right, but I had read that, and now it's being bottled as, you know, I guess kind of the same thing as a, uh, there's tons of brands of coconut water now that's sort of being branded as, um, you know, a replacement for, for regular water if you're dehydrated, that, you know? That's right. And, <laughs> and now, I mean, we are in the petrochemical age, and my goodness, we're, we're making the most of it. I'm, I'm sitting here, I've got my, my glass of wine, so, you know, I, I'm... I'm I am enjoying vegetables a bit, but I've got my car outside that runs on petrochemicals. I've got the house being nicely cozy, warm, because it's, it's quite late evening over here, um, thanks to gas from, you know, from somewhere or other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know, really, that these things, they're not going to last forever. We can't go on using our fossil fuels like we have and I think that we're, in a sense, the history of, of many of these plants is only half written. I, I think we're going to see the time when we're going to look again at, at how, you know, how these plants can help us. Yes, that's, that's very interesting because one of, the, um, one of the plants that I also found very um, interesting in the list was ferns. And this yeah. is this is a good time because they are some of the oldest plants on the planet. Um, in in your book, you state that human ancestry goes back about four million years. Ferns appeared approximately three hundred and thirty five million years ago, and as you were saying, the um, we are using um, gas, coal, all of that is a result of millions of year old decomposing ancient plants, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I I mean, when you called me this evening, I I, I was, as they say, just putting the finishing touches to to my latest book, which is um, 50 Railroads That Changed the Course of History. (laughs) And of course, there we are. We're back with with coal. We're back with fossilized fuels. You know, the ferns of yesteryear. I mean, I, I, I love the Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, quote about coal. Um, coal, he says, it's a portable climate. It carries the heat of the tropics to Labrador and the polar circle, and it's the means of transporting itself whithersoever it is wanted. Watt and Stevenson, nice references there to uh, inventor of the engine, whispered in the ear of mankind their secret that half an ounce of coal will draw two tons a mile. And coal carries coal by rail and by boat to make Canada as warm as Calcutta. And absolutely extraordinary. It powered the Industrial Revolution. Um, And, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I think in in the year 2000, it was estimated that we were using two million years worth of fossilized fuel every year. What... uh, guy called Herbie Giraudet called an orgy of consumerism. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of emphasizes the, the, you know, the impact on history of, of, of such a plant. But I think it also emphasizes that our need to learn and to look at ourselves in the way that we use plants. Absolutely. We don't have 335 million years to build up um, for the vegetation that's on the earth now to decompose and fossilize to fuel, you know, 
our homes and our cars in the future. So we do have to rethink our relationship with plants. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, as you, as you probably noticed, and as many of our listeners know, this radio station is very much focused on food. And I would be remiss to not include one of our most important agricultural crops, um, wheat, as a history-changing crop. And um, wheat kind of sort of grew to the top of the heap, and, it, and it, it rose above all the other grains, you know, to dominate our agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and why wheat um, became so dominant? Yes, indeed. I, I did think for a moment that you might be mentioning sugarcane. Uh, one, <laughs> one radio is. station said to me, so what do you think really is the most damaging plant of mm. all? And, uh, you know, I think they expected me to say opium poppy or whatever, right. or cannabis sativa or something. But, uh, of course, it's, uh, I, I rate the sugar, the, uh, you know, what we've done with sugar, with refined sugar, is the most dangerous. Uh, and our newspapers over here are all getting very vexed today about um, the, the looming problem of obesity. But, of course, they're, they're not so vexed about the, the problem of wheat. Um, why should they be? Where would we be without our, our loaves of bread? Um, I, I, a few years back, I, I, I took to making my own bread, and it, 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 it's a real therapy. And I buy my flour from the, the local store, and I suspect my flower probably comes from your prairies. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> all, all that way, because it's, it's fine flower. Um, it, it is an extraordinary plant. I, I mean, it took generations and generations to, to refine it um, to, to the wheat that we've got today. I mean, one of, the, one of the frustrating problems for the poor Neolithic farmers when they were kind of harvesting their grains, and, and grains are just uh, a ma- almost magical uh, uh, plant, well, you know, well, the seed of the plant, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all that protein, all that sto- starch, all stored up in one tiny little um, preservable grain. Yeah, um, sorry, I completely it's... lost my thread in my enthusiasm <laughs> for wheat. <laughs> well, I, you know, I come from a from many, many, many. I was born in Italy, and I come from many, many generations of farmers, and they grew pretty much everything that they consumed, and that oh, their cool. and that their livestock consumed. And I would spend summers on my grandfather's farm, running through the freshly cut wheat fields. I have an affinity and love for it as well. Um, and it fed many generations of my family um, quite well. <laughs> um, and it also did very well for the mill owners. And I found that a very interesting um, part of the story. These, the it, people that really made the money were the mill owners. And they, these mills were the one, became the, the huge multinationals like Cargill and Unilever. Is that right? It did, absolutely. And isn't, isn't that funny that it, it wasn't the farmer uh, necessarily who, who benefited, it was the miller. And, I mean, looking at old maps, uh, I, where am I? I'm, I'm on the, we live on the Welsh borders in a little city called Hereford, you know, the name named after your, the fine cattle that, uh, yes. that you, you have over there. Um, and look at any map of, I don't know, 1850. I've got one up on the wall here. 
and and our our little fields around are dotted with mills. There are mills everywhere, and and the mills did, uh, you know, they they took in the wheat, they took in the grain, um, they marketed, they consolidated, they gathered together, and now our our local football ground is is sponsored by Cargill. It's this huge sign saying Cargill sponsors Hereford United, wow. and so few people realise that. Yeah, that that's their money came from the honest miller of years ago. Well, I suppose I hope they were honest millers. I don't know, um, but yes, it, extraordinary that that wheat has it's it, it, it made fortunes. It trans it transformed landscapes. I mean. The, the whole architecture, if you like, of bread. <laughs> you know, you, you go out into the into the countryside and you see the silos and you see the well these days the combines and the barns and it's yeah it's it's wheat architecture. Yes, we see a lot of that here, of course, in the States. Um, I traded um, Italy for Kansas. My husband's from Kansas, and there's no shortage right. of wheat architecture there at all, <laughs> at, at a whole other scale than, uh, than in Italy. <laughs> and, and what a scale. I, I, I mean, that was an extraordinary transformation. The, the American prairies, um, you know, the American prairies being put down to wheat, essentially, uh, after a, a few battles here and there, but you know, becoming the world's breadbasket, and and this, again, the Soviet Union, how uh, you know how the the whole business of wheat impacted on the economies uh, of the Soviet Union, quite incredible. It is an incredible plant. Well, it's it's a perfect plant to end with. I highly recommend that you all listening by this book by Bill Laws, 50 Plants That Changed the Course of History. We were only able to touch on a few. There's so many more interesting stories in there. Bill, thank you so much for joining us so late in the evening. You're five or six hours ahead there. Um, and we hope to have you on again, perhaps um, on your next book that somehow relates to, to plants or agriculture. Thank you, Carmen. It's good to talk to you, and it's nice to talk to your listeners. Okay. Well, you've been listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. A special thanks go out to our sponsor. Our show has been produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Joe G. Please join us on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants. We'd love your feedback. We're going to be posting a link to Bill Law's blog and website so you can follow him as well. Thanks for listening, and see you in the garden. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.